if you do that, you create something that I call emotional retention. And I think emotional retention is the retention that is the most sticky, the hardest one to compete with, because you're going to have retention just based on your utility and your features you provide. That's fine. That's good. You know, and like, if that's good retention, like go for it. But emotional retention is the one where you're not just with the company because of the utility, you're with the company because of the emotional connection, the emotional bond that you have with the company. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. Today, I stopped by public.com's Tribeca headquarters, for a conversation with Live Abraham, co-founder and co-CEO of Public.com, an investing platform for equities, fixed income, and alternative assets. Founded in 2019, Public now serves over 3 million customers and has raised hundreds of millions of dollars from investors like Graycroft, Axel, Lakestar, Tiger Global, and many more. We discuss how Live launched his first internet company as a teenager from his room in Hamburg, Germany, the importance of building a customer fan base and the concept of emotional retention, international expansion and why bonds are definitely back, building Public's app as a mainstream window to the markets, Startup founder advice and just a lot more. Live, thank you for opening your doors of public.com's office. Love your your building, your office. How did you land in in like this specific Tribeca building? So in I think November 2020, we basically were like, okay. We would assume people come back to the office. There was like pre-vaccines and whatnot, right? And so we just like started looking around. We hired a new BD guy at the time. He came. He was one of the first employees at Notel. And so he just like knew very well just like the real estate, you know, market in New York. He knew all the brokers. He knew all the, you know, people that you kind of need to know to basically get this done. And we were like, okay, so your first job before you're going to land some you know, partnership deals for us and stuff is going to be, you're going to find us an office. <laughs> <laughs> He was he was nice enough to do that. He's by the way also an incredible negotiator. Ron <laughs> Zori is his name. So he's also now running a fund, by the way. You know, he basically like just ran around and and looked for spaces. And we stumbled over this one. And it needed a little bit of work, but we got an incredible deal because we basically really just like picked this at the bottom, where like no one was thinking about office space in any regard. And so we got an incredible, incredible, credible deal, you know, and then also it was like, you know, two years and then another two years extensions on pretty much the same terms and stuff. And so, yeah. And so since then we have been in the space, this floor and then another floor up uh, up there, I will show you afterwards. That's amazing. It yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. It looks like a jungle. <laughs> uh, that's like the interior design hack. Just put plants everywhere. It's going to look amazing. <laughs> Q4 2020, Q1 2021, just historic lows. 
for New York real estate. So congrats. But you're not a a New York, you're a transplant. You now I guess now you you are basically a New Yorker, but where where did you come from before? You you have a bit of a European accent, if I'm not wrong. Oh, a little of an accent. It's a beautiful <laughs> German accent. And yeah, so I grew up in Hamburg, Germany. Um, moved to the US in 08. And so I landed in August 08, right before the crash, so to say. Nice. And then I uh, was first in Boulder, Colorado for like a year and a half. There's like an ad agency there. Don't tell anyone. I'm saying this on a podcast, but like <laughs> some like dark agency history there. And then moved to New York, spent like a year and a half in San Francisco too, and then back to New York. New York is still the best. Yeah, 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 and and uh, you. When did you start to build, right? To build companies because because this is not your first one. A little bit in and out. So the first thing I've built was sort of say out of my kids' room, which was a website for video games, and because that's what you do when you're a child, you play video games, and through that I stumbled over like affiliate marketing and stuff, and so I kind of just figured out like, oh, if you you know embed this ad in your website and someone clicks on it, you can make some money with it. So I kind of fell down this rabbit hole of just figuring out basically ways to make money on the internet, and I had a quite lucky hand with that, so it was, you know, I think it was like 15, 16 at the time. I started to, you know, for measures at that point in time, like, make decent amounts of money, and so I started funding fan sites for video games, because they were run by, you know, kids like myself, or like out of the kids' rooms. And at the time, like, servers were super expensive, right? AWS was non-existent. You know, this is like 2002, three, right? So you're so, subsidizing this, and this so website. And so, like, I was basically then, like, you know, paying for the expenses. And in exchange, I was getting the, you know, the rights of all the kind of ad placements and basically turned that into like, an, into, like, an ad network for gaming in Germany, which was, like, the second largest at the time. But I was literally a child. So, like, every contract I was signing at the time was basically... Not really valid because it wasn't even 18 <laughs> yet. That's <laughs> on. So I did a bunch of stuff like that and a bunch of other little like projects, you know, around that. And then, you know, ended up basically being like, you know, like a digital agency and stuff and and so on. And then got back into it when I was in the US. And, you know, one of the things that a friend of mine and I did, the guy that I moved to the US with together, we all just like worked together as like a team and, you know, agency world and stuff. And then what we did was like we wrote this book in two thousand and like nine, ten or so. But obviously no one knew us and whatnot. So we created this thing with paper tweets where it's like you click a button to like tweet about the book, which then had a kinda of has like viral effect. And that went completely viral at nuts and like, you know, Mitt Romney used it when he ran for president. Sorry about that. Nothing happened, so all fine. But <laughs> and you know, every major record label used it to like give kind of songs away and stuff. So that kind of thing just blew up organically and then there was like a little bit this this crossroads of like, you're going to quit your job to try to make that a company? Are you going to let it just have a slow death or so on? And then we sold that to another company builder in Germany. And that was like the first kind of forte of that. And then before public, I did a freelancing software called Enco. It's like, you know, invoicing payments, task management, all that kind of stuff. And then sold that to Fiverr. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess all those businesses that you have described they are not heavily regulated, and public.com definitely is, right? I, I mean, aside from the obvious that you have to pay attention to regulation, how does that change the entrepreneurial experience? I don't know if it changes that much, to be quite honest. I think, you know, it's obviously, it's, con it's just constraints you have to obviously work with. But in our case, I think when it comes to financial services specifically, this mantra of move fast and break things just doesn't work because you deal with people's money. 
And even when you're a financial service, like things like product health are so much more important because when you open the app and you see wrong numbers, you're not going to trust this app anymore. And so I think there's just a sense of, you know, doing things, so to say, the more proper way, you know, and compliance just being part of that. I think it's just ingrained as soon as you deal with people's money. And so why public? Tell us a bit about the story of why you decide to launch a fintech. So Bakufan Ayanek was deep in fintech for a while, but he ran a trading app out of the UK called Tradable, which he sold as well. And we were both at this crossroads of having sold our companies, figuring out what to do next. And basically one of the core insights that happened was really the sense of that if you looked around of why people didn't actively invest in the markets, one of the main reasons was really this like psychological barrier of thinking that it's not for you. And so it wasn't really pricing. It wasn't really commissions and so on. It was really more the sense of, I'm not a finance person. I don't know how this goes. Therefore, I'm not even going to try. And we found that pretty interesting as a you know kind of core insight. And it even was the same for me. Like I didn't actively invest until after I was like 30 years old and I had like a little bit of money saved up and stuff, you know. And I would argue that, it's, that that's the case for most people. And, you know, other outside of like the 401k or something like that, right? And so what we then recognized is that there were basically these like two major barriers was basically the sense of just like portfolio construction and basically therefore the ability to buy anything fractionalized. And so, you know, at that time, Amazon was a $2,000 stock, you know, the average, you know, the like median average savings account in the US is like two and a half grand or so, I believe. And so it was like very hard to like really build a portfolio, you know, in that regard. And so just that, you know, giving, giving people the ability to just buy, buy any stuff with any amount of money was like the kind of like structural barrier. And then the psychological barrier was really the sense of seeing other people like you invest in the markets as well. And that's really where the social angle also came from, from a perspective of as you come into the experience, if you see people like yourself and how they think about it and you're able to exchange, you know, thoughts and ideas with them, that the devil make you much more, you know, comfortable, but also much more confident because you will recognize that it's not necessarily rocket science. What came first, the name of the company or the fact that you got the domain public? A little bit. I mean, the name came first because that's when we obviously like then looked out for the domain. But we obviously looked for names that were, were potentially able to acquire domains as well. And... I'm a little bit of a domain nerd. I have a bunch of record domains in my portfolio. I'm wasting money on that every year. You think of a, a great name and you just buy the domain. Immediately. <laughs> exactly. It's one of those, it's one of those addictions. Exactly. <laughs> and um, but long story short, we had this like one domain broker guy basically who helped us, you know, structure that deal. And so we were able to get that done. I think we transferred the domain like two days before launch. Also, so like it literally, we had like another domain already bought, which I think was hellopuppet.com or something. And then literally like two days before launch, we actually like closed it all, you know, got it transferred, had the DNS record straight. And then it was like off to the races. And so what have you learned over the last, how many years have you in live for? Yeah. So we launched in September of 19. Yeah. And so, you know, close to three and a half years now. Yeah. Yeah. And what have been like the biggest learnings? Because you started pre-pandemic, you went through the pandemic where... I understand you had, you know, just insane growth. And now we're calling it a post-pandemic world where, of course, things have changed a little bit. So what have been kind of some of the key learnings? So first off, we obviously were immediately kind of falling into a storm around retail investing. And so, you know, there was 
you know, obviously also, you know, some, you know, just like market dynamics attached to, you know, why we're able to tap into certain growth. You know, we always say there was luck involved, but luck favors are prepared as well. And so you got to prepare to also, you know, take advantage of these situations. But if you think of the different years, basically, right, 2021, you had COVID, you know, sports arenas were closed. The stock market was like the only arena that was still open. People want to rally for something, you know, sports betting was off even. And so there was a lot of speculation happening and everything was pointing up to the right heads in most cases. And so that obviously created that first kind of wave and, you know, interest. And then the second really came in 2021 with GameStop. So you can think of it as 2020, uh, COVID stocks, 2021 meme stocks, and kind of meme points as well with, you know, Dogecoin rally, things like that. And so what we've really seen is that the TAM expansion and, you know, the kind of like greater adoption of people participating in the markets is accelerated through market events. And in the past, these market events have been driven by speculation because it was the tail end of a bull market and so on. Then, though, what we have seen within public is that people might come in through one of these market events, also because for some people it's fun, for some people it's like community-driven, they want to feel like they're part of something, which you like specifically see around things like meme stocks, for example. But then they actually build the literacy as they come to the experience and they end up building portfolios that might suddenly have SPY in it and you know learn about ETFs and learn about other yield-yielding products and so on. And that's really what we've seen of like that these market events can be great, you know, just catalysts for just people starting their investing journeys. And even though it might start very speculative, it doesn't mean that they're going to, you know, stay in that mindset. And so if you now fast forward into the 2023, you could argue that the market event that's happening right now is in T-bills. And, you know, because suddenly yield is back, it's, you know, something that hasn't been around for, you know, 15 years roughly or so on. And, you know, everyone is kind of re-educating themselves about how do bonds work, right? What are T-bills? What are maturity dates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we recently launched treasury accounts, which basically makes it easy for people to invest in T-bills, daily liquidity, automatic rollovers, things like that. And so kind of like a comparison to, you know, like, like this, it's like an alternative to like, to like a high yield savings account with a higher yield because it's T-bills. And, but like what you've basically seen is that now that has a market event. And a lot of the retail interest suddenly flows into that. And so you've seen really how also just from a you know education perspective of retail, you see how people have really flowed from, you know, meme stocks to T-bills. And you see how market events and these, you know, economic cycles are also these forcing functions for people to educate themselves. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot. So in a way, what you're saying is, you know, it's easy to get people on the way up for equities, but... After the fact, you know, it's part of it for keeping people in the market is offering the right products. You know, once once the market has cooled, is there something else to that? You know, aside from having a good diversified product suite and, and offering education, what else have you learned about the psychology of investors in the last, call it year, since, you know, we've got away from peaks? We often talk about for public specifically, that we want to be the window to the markets for people. And if you look at, you know, even just from a pure media perspective, how people have, you know, followed the markets of the past, you're thinking about Wall Street Journal, you're thinking about CNBC, you know, at Bloomberg, et cetera, et cetera. These are all still fairly sophisticated publications, you'll say. And what we've really done a lot of work in is that you don't just go to public to trade, 
you go to public because it's your window to the markets. And so on the app, right, we have these public live shows where like multiple times a day, you have this like audio, you know, style shows you can listen into. We have like the open, which is like our, you know, 15 minute version of like a squawk box, right? And like breaking news or like earnings call breakdowns, right? Then you have the social angle to it where you can follow other investors, see what they're doing, see what they talk about. And then you also have things like, you know, why is it moving cards? So like if it's, if a, if a chart moves, you know, in one direction or the other, you know, very quickly, we have this little context card that tells you of like, you know, why likely is a stock moving so dramatically right now? And so, which really then creates this behavior where it's not just about, hey, I want to make a trade right now, but it's this behavior of like, hey, what's happening in the markets? And that is really, you know, then also what creates context for people, what educates them more over time, what makes them more comfortable. But it also can, for example, help things like panic selling, right? Of, you know, if you open up your app and it's just a red line that points down to the right, you know, it's very easy to also feel unease about it and, you know, make potentially, you know, irrational moves very quickly. But if you have the context around it, you can see how other people, you know, digest what's happening in the markets right now, et cetera, et cetera, that those things, you know, really help people to kind of make more informed and just like better investing decisions for themselves as well. So that's where we've seen really the sense of, you know, that's like the context, you know, creating, so to say, you know, more healthy behaviors. So bonds are back. Right? Bonds are back. Bonds are cool again. <laughs> what's, uh, you know, grandparents were right. So so tell me, you know, what's the experience like, you know, launching treasuries? Is this something that the public was demanding before you launched it? Uh, and, you know, what's been the response like? Yeah. So we are obviously still a very young company, right? So we are three and a half years on market. And so we... If we look at ourselves, we believe we're still far away of, you know, the full product suite of what we believe public should be. And so we're still in the game of adding new asset classes, adding new features, you know, all the time. And as part of that, we're also, like, it's also a little bit, you know, our job then even just for the success of the company even to try to predict a little bit, you know, what will be, you know, the highest impact next, you know, asset class or feature to launch and so on. And... As soon as rates start to go up and we were kind of like looking at our roadmap and be like, what to prioritize with other things, it became very clear to us that as yield comes back, that a T-bill offering or just a bonds offering in general, you know, will be something that will likely just have a lot of product market fit for the time, right? And it's a little bit like you want to tap into the zeitgeist that's there at the moment, because again, market events are good for us in the sense that they drive a lot of organic interest. And so, you know, if you can capitalize on these market events through the asset classes you have, through the features you have, that basically feeds everything good in the experience. And so that's why, you know, we've obviously worked on this for a little while now, but kind of timed it, you know, hopefully quite well, so far at least, considering that, you know, likely rates will keep going up, I would assume. And, you know, when you, as a company, let's talk a bit internally about your team, when you decide you know, to go ahead with some sort of product offering, in this case, treasuries, bonds. How does that machinery work internally? You know, maybe tell us about, you know, how the sausage gets done because, you know, we have a good number of aspiring founders or, or founders tuning in, also a lot of operators. So it'd be, it'd be good to learn, you know, how you guys develop internally. So... Obviously, at this stage, like we have a pod structure internally, right? We have specific product engineering teams that have specific domain expertises and, you know, and responsibilities. And depending on what those features are, they will land with certain people, right? The way we look at the roadmap 
is though through mostly the sense of products and levers. And so products, you can think of the things that will generate revenue for us, right? It's a product on the shelf that we tend to sell to customers, which in most cases is related to asset classes, but it could also be things like, you know, the premium subscription offering and so on. And then levers are the things that help us grow interest and, you know, just grow, you know, adoption of these products. That can be, in our case, related to flows, because again, AUM and, you know, having more dollars in the app, you know, feeds into monetization of different asset classes. That can mean things like you know, conversion optimization. That can mean things like the ability to move money from different sources in and out of the app and things like that. And so that's roughly how we think about in terms of like product and levers. And in most cases, you can think of like most product parts will work on the products. And then we have, you know, growth part and so on that will mostly focus on things like levers. And then those two are always in tandem. And, you know, from a prioritization perspective, you just try to figure out, you know, as much as possible to obviously, you know, launch these like in sequences that, it, you know, the drives the most impact. And given your European background, obviously, did you ever consider building public in Europe? So we launched, we announced international expansion. And so uh, there's a few countries that are coming soon, which we'll be able to announce very soon. And so that will happen. Like where does little, you know, theory even just for what the company is built around is that we truly believe there's going to be 300 million people with an investing app on the home screen between the US and Europe. And what that means is basically you can think of that as like two major phases, right? The first phase is be part and drive as much of the TAM expansion so that also that we get a bite from that Apple, right? And that's where launching in new markets comes in. That's where, you know, adding asset classes that drives more organic growth, et cetera, et cetera. And just like growing the general retail investor user base, right? That's like, you think of that's like phase one. Phase two is really the sense of the closer you get to the reality that you will have, you know, 300 million people with an investing app on the home screen. And therefore, the closer you get the reality where just retail and just most adults are in some way actively participating in the markets, the more all participants around the markets have to adapt to that reality. And that falls into how do public companies interact with retail investors, um, that falls into ETF issuers, that falls into potentially financial advisors at some point, that falls into you know media and media companies, creators, and so on. Because again, take the media example, right? CNBC might not necessarily be a mainstream you know, business markets news. It might still be a touch too sophisticated from its format, from, you know, the type of guests that are going on and so on. And so, you know, there will be a point, and that's partially also what we're building, obviously, public life and so on, where, you know, there has to be like a mainstream, you know, version of that, that, you know, truly, you know, everyone can actually consume and understand can be that translating layer for the broad kind of mainstream retail market. Same with public companies, right? So we've launched... Pulse, which is our B2B offering, and where we basically help public companies interact or like engage with retail investors. And so they can host town halls on the app where like, you know, a CEO can go on and do a QA session. They can distribute materials, you know, around their earnings calls, for example, because also they actually have a responsibility to ensure that all the shareholders get the same information. And in the past, it has been very hard for companies to even you know, treat retail the same way because, you know, you might have a call with, you know, some bank analyst, you know, that no one else has access to. And that same thing is not happening for retail necessarily. And so there is even an obligation for public companies to ensure there's 
fairness in how they distribute information. And that is going actually like pretty well now already. And it's a, you know, very lean team. You know, we kind of call it like, like it's like a startup within the startup, so to say. But that is like one of the first executions of that network, so to say. And so what we, again, think about is like, first you build that, that base and like drive the TAM expansion. The closer you get their reality, the more business opportunities will unveil itself that we obviously want to tap into as well. So you're going global, but I guess what I meant was you're building in New York City. Does that mean this is the fintech capital of the world? We also have an office in Copenhagen. All right. Um, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Who knows? I mean, New York obviously has like a deep-rooted history in you know finance in general and so on. But you know, for us, we were here. We love New York. That's why it started here. But I wouldn't necessarily say that New York was picked because of that reason. But generally speaking, you know, as we go global, like we will keep building our global footprint as well, right? So I think we have like 40 people in Copenhagen now All right. and so on. So I would say we have a pretty decent footprint in Europe already. And so like we're talking on a Tuesday after like a five-day madness sprint with Silicon Valley Bank going under and, and, and just a lot of stress in the system. What was your experience? Did you have a good weekend? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was glued to Twitter through the weekend. Yes. And for us, it wasn't like it wasn't a massive impact really. So it didn't like it didn't really affect us much. I would say though, I am incredibly impressed with the FDIC. I think it's easy to always look down upon on, you know, government institutions and the pace and the pace they, you know, operate with and so on. But I mean FDIC was incredibly fast here. It was you know, yeah, like I'm just incredibly impressed by just like the pace that that has moved. And generally speaking, I feel like that hopefully should give everyone, you know, good confidence and just like, you know, the American financial system there, because that was really what's what was really the risk here, right? That you just have something that, they, that you have a situation where just general confidence starts to starts to break. And that's just something that obviously cannot happen. And so I would say kudos to the FTSE for like how incredibly quick they've you know, operated here. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's, a, it's like a SWAT team. And, and I think most people in the U.S. don't understand this, but this wouldn't happen in another country. Like there's a handful of countries where the FDIC equivalent could act so quickly and the government would move so quickly. Although it felt like, you know, many, many days for people who were in it. But in reality, it was just 50 hours or something from start to finish. So... I'm with you. I'm, I was very, very impressed. And so, live as I mentioned before, before we go, we have quite a good number of founders tuning in or aspiring founders. You know, what are some reflections that you'd like to that you sh usually share? Because I know you mentor and you're always open to chat with founders. You know, what what are some of the topics that you usually talk about that you you could share here? Oh, it's a super broad question, but like my background is mostly in growth. And so that's what I can nerd out about and what I have on all you know, strong point of view, as you can say. And so that's why I mostly, you know, let's say like, you know, have very nerdy conversations about and so on. I mean, from that perspective, like one thing that we've talked a lot about a lot within public, you know, and just like the way we always thought about building the company and the brand and stuff is this notion of building a fan base, not just a user base. And where a user base is basically people using your features they're using your app for a certain utility 
but you also have the risk that as soon as someone, you know, makes it freer than free or is the cool new app around the block or so on, that those people will leave. Because it's basically, you know, you're just coming from, like, your connection is just the utility it provides. Versus the fan base really is the sense where you have people rally behind the company. And in order to get people to rally behind the company, you have to run a company that can act on its values. So it's not just words you're putting out, but it's basically like actions that you do as a company that people can rally behind. For us, for example, the decision to go off payment for autoflow, you know, literally shortly after the GameStop scenario, was one of the things we always had contemplated and as we then did it. And, you know, we've received a lot of user love from that. And that is one of those examples where you kind of, you know, give your, like your customers, you know, basically talking points that makes it easy for them to rally behind you. Because it's not just hitting the brain, it's not hitting the heart, right? It's not just like, it's the things where there's a higher calling here of like fair and transparent markets. There's a notion of they're on my side. And, you know, I'm just like finding your opportunities to not just talk about what your values are, but to actually prove them. That's, I think, is one of the, you know, most important pieces to truly build a fan base. Because if you do that, you create something that I call emotional retention. And I think emotional retention is the retention that is the most sticky, the hardest one to compete with. Because you can have retention just based on your utility and your features you provide. That's fine. That's good. You know, and like, if that's good retention, like, go for it. But emotional retention is the one where you're not just with a company because of the utility, you're with the company because of the emotional connection, the emotional bond that you have with the company. And then it's just incredibly hard to compete with. And so, you know, in our case, you know, we meet each other in the bar and, you know, you're using a particular green investing app, let's say, you know, my reaction shouldn't just be, you know, oh, you know, I use public, it's, I don't know, it's a cleaner experience, I'll kind of like the UI a little more, you know. My reaction should be like, yo, what the fuck? You know, why are you using this? You know, you should use public because boom, 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 boom. Right? And those bullet points, like that, that is the that is the ammunition you give to people to rally on your behalf. And I think that is, you know, one of the things that from a pure growth perspective, in terms of building a fan base, which then comes with all the good things, emotional retention, high word of mouth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's something I would always just focus on and I would look for opportunities because throughout the life time of your company it's just like if you are very clear of what your values there are you will find opportunities on how to prove those values right and so if one value of yours is like we always want to be on the side of our customer or we want to always act with a lot of transparency right that sounds very vague and blah you know but now it's on you to find moments in you know the life of your company where you can actually prove that and those actions are the ones that will build your fan base and therefore build that emotional retention I love that. And are there ways to measure this? It's tough, man. It's tough, right? I mean, obviously, hopefully you've got retention. Otherwise, my whole spiel right now will break down quickly. And obviously also high you know, amounts of organic and so on. But I think the other thing is then also just like the anecdotes like that. Like, do you actually have people ready for you, right? Do you have people go into Twitter threats and defend you as a company or, you know, tell other people they should stop doing this and they should go to your company? And so like, do you see those anecdotes on it? Twitter helps. Twitter helps. <laughs> All right. Well, live amazing conversation. Thanks for this. I'm sure uh, the audience is going to 
be very, very interesting in every minute of it. So, uh, you know, I'm excited to polish it. But thanks again for welcoming me to your office. Cool. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Life Abraham from public.com. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.